church uh, in the East Bay up in Northern California. Um, I have struggled with depression for a lot of years, and uh, I, uh, I, was, I, I was feeling like I was, things were getting kind of worse for me, and I was going a little bit downhill. This was in the year 2013, and so I went and I saw my therapist. My therapist said, you're doing okay. You don't, you don't need medicine yet, but, you know, why don't you keep going to counseling? So I went back at the beginning of 2014, and they say, well, you're doing worse, and we think you need medication now. And so they put me on medication at the beginning of 2014, and by the end of 2014, I was in a mental institution in Oakland, California. Um, I had completely lost myself. I didn't know who I was anymore. I told my wife I didn't love her anymore. I told my mother-in-law I didn't love my life anymore, which that was a great conversation uh, to have. And um, I was more or less a confused wreck of a person. And the church that I worked for at the time, they actually allowed me to have roughly three or four months, six months off uh, time where they didn't know if I was going to recover, where they didn't know if I was going to come back, where they didn't know what was going to happen. And so today, the, that is my background in a nutshell, and we can talk about it more a little bit later, but there are some things that I learned through my experience that I want to share with you. Um, and my guess would be that you're going to be able to relate to a lot of what I've experienced as well. Even if what you've gone through or what you've lived through or what you had happened in your life hasn't been quite as dramatic as maybe what happened to me. Um, so there are two questions that I want you to consider as we start out tonight, okay? And uh, I'm going to ask you these two questions, and I want you to, to actually just take one moment. I've, I've always wanted to have be in a classroom where you can do this. <laughs> like, that's amazing right there. That's amazing. So there's two questions I want you to consider, and, and if you're comfortable doing so, I want you to take a moment to consider, actually, to think about them, but then to turn to the person next to you and... and and talk to them a little bit about what you think about these two questions. The first question is this. Does God want us to be broken, or does he want us to be whole? Second question. Does God want us to be broken, or does God want us to be strong? Okay? Those are the two questions I want you to think about for a moment. And I want you just to take a couple of minutes, and if you're comfortable doing so, turn to the person next to you. If you're not comfortable doing so, write something down in a notebook or on the desk or on the wall, uh, anywhere you feel comfortable doing so. But think about this for a second. 
Does God want us to be broken or does he want us to be whole? Does God want us to be broken or does he want us to be strong? Talk amongst yourselves. Quickly, does, do these feel like trick questions? Yes. 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 yes, they do feel like trick questions. And they feel like trick questions, number one, because you read the title to the class, which says, why should something stay broken? And so there's a part of you that is saying, well, broken has to be at least part of the right answer. But there's an issue with broken being part of the right answer. And that is we have always talked about and believed that God makes us whole and strong. And that this is the goal or the ideal that God has for us, is to be whole and to be strong. But there's a problem with those two words. What does whole mean? And what does it look like? And what is strength? And what does that look like? And who gets to decide what the proper definition is? <coughs> it's troubling a little bit when we start to think about it that way. Now we want to answer even less. Because the brokenness side still doesn't feel right. It still doesn't feel right. This can't be the life that God wants us to live as we understand brokenness. It can't. It can't be this, and yet, what about this other side, and what is it that God wants for us? Well, I want you to know something. The way that you answer these two questions can shape the way you view the world. And it can shape the Jesus that people see when they meet you. How do you answer these two questions? Well, now we're terrified of the questions, <laughs> right? Can we just, there's a big eraser here. Maybe we can just wipe them out. But why is this question so significant? Why is it so important? Why do we even need to consider it at all? Well, let's look at it this way. Generally speaking, when, uh, and this is not something we do all the time, right? But when we talk about Christian community, we often look at it in this sort of a way. Christian community looks something like this. It's a big circle, okay? And part of what we do as Christians is we decide who's inside the circle and who's outside the circle. So, who is inside the circle when it comes to having relationship, right relationship with God? People like us. <laughs> People like us. I know you may not be able to read my writing, and that's your problem. So. <laughs> People like us, absolutely. And let's, let's flesh that out a little bit, right? They look like us. They talk like us. They think like us. They do the things that we think they should do. They don't do the things that we think they shouldn't do. So this, this term covers, it covers a lot of real estate right there. That's a lot of ground, that they look like us. But it gets us to the bottom of how we most often decide who is inside the circle. <clears throat> what did they do? <clears throat> what did they refrain from doing? What did they look like? How do they talk? What did they know? All these things are qualifiers that we use to help determine Who's in the circle? Now, can we know who belongs to Jesus? We should. My friend Kyle over here is giving me the probably look. Right. 
We can, well, and, and here's, what, here's what I mean by that question. We can confidently know whether we belong to Christ or not, correct? Yes, and we can have confidence in whether or not we belong to Christ. Yes? Yes. Okay. But a lot of times, we focus on these particular things. And then we also decide who is not a part of the circle. And how do we determine that? By the things that they do, by the way that they look, by the way that they talk, by what they know or don't know, by how they act, if it's different from how we act. And hasn't the church, and I don't mean just churches of Christ, hasn't the church over time been pretty good at determining who was not like us? <clears throat> yeah? I mean, we've been good at that. In fact, sometimes we have focused so much on who is not like us that we fail to see the people that are like us. <coughs> because there is one thing here or there. But this is a tough question. Like, what criteria do we use? What criteria do we use? What does it mean to be a Christian? And how do we decide whether someone is working, is living, I should say, the Christian life out in an effective way? Well, we have... We have, um, we have markers, right? All these different things. Are they doing these kinds of things? Are they not doing these kinds of things? And here's what happens. What kind of an image that you do the right things, that you look the right way, that you talk the right way, that you know the right things, what kind of an image is this? What is the image that this is putting out to the world? It's exclusive. It's exclusive? <clears throat> okay, what else? Hold on. This pen is not as good as the other pen. <laughs> it's exclusive. It's judgmental. Prideful. Arrogant. Arrogant. I like that word, surface. Hateful. Hateful. Give me more on that. Uh, I think there are some who would say the church hates them by the way they look, the things they do, the way they talk. Okay. Okay. So, the church has an image problem. Christianity has an image problem. This is without getting into nationwide issues, what certain people in certain parts of the country are saying about certain things or how Christianity has responded to natural disasters, any of those things, any of those things, we're just going to take those off the table because that's just a lot for us to try to handle in the next 45 minutes, okay? But what we can recognize is this. This image that we're portraying is a particular kind of image, yes? And it's a particular kind of image that relates one word that I want to use. Strength. Character. Christians choose to do the right things. They choose to not do the wrong things. Christians choose to do this kind of stuff. They don't choose to do this kind of stuff. Christians look <clears throat> this way. They don't look this way. And when we this, this whole image that we are trying to portray, I want to suggest tonight, 
is an image of strength. We do our very best to project strength. We do our very best to be a certain kind of people. We do Christian things, and we don't do unchristian things. And we want, as Christians, to be seen as capable, as faithful, as confident, as solid. Like, we have God on our side, and so what could possibly go wrong? What could possibly go wrong? What could possibly go wrong? If you think about it, the image that we project is, is a little bit much. And I mean, even these words that you came up with just a moment ago show that. We feel like we have to project this image of strength as Christians, and yet we recognize that there are problems with the image that we're projecting. And you already know this, I'm sure. The two words that are most often used to describe Christians by those who are not Christians are what two words? Hypocrite. Judgmental yeah. and hypocritical. <clears throat> Judgmental and hypocritical. Now let's let's think about those two words for just a second. Okay. Christians are most often portrayed by non-Christians as being Judgmental and hypocritical. Now, what does that mean? What does judgmental mean? That we are looking, we are perceived as looking at people and saying what? Right or wrong. Right or wrong, period. And most often it is being seen as us saying wrong. wrong. <clears throat> you are wrong. Something about you is wrong. Something about what you do is wrong. And can we admit that Christians have not always been very good at allowing there to be some separation between a person and what they may do that we don't like. You are wrong. And then it's compounded by this second issue. They see us as telling them, well, you are wrong, and then what do they know about us? <laughs> We are wrong, too. And but, so then what is the biggest problem? And you know what? This is not just a problem for non-Christians. This is a problem for everybody. What is something that everybody can't stand to be around? A hypocrite. Why? Because we don't like to be around people who are up to their eyeballs in problems and pretend like they have a perfect life. Instagram, Facebook the people that you see on there that you know, that you know are hurting and struggling and can't figure out what to do with their lives, and yet they're portraying to the world that everything, <clears throat> things could not be more amazing than they are. It's rough, right? And we see this all, we see this all the time. And this is how, the, I, this is how a lot of non-Christians look at us, is they look at us as portraying a Facebook life and having a bottom-of-the-well life. And they can't, they don't want to be like us. And there's one main reason why they don't want to be like us, is that it feels fake. 
it feels fake. So, you guys with me? Yeah? Anyone have a headache yet? <laughs> don't, don't, don't be uh, sad or depressed when we leave here tonight, because there's good news for us. Are we fakers? Sometimes. Sometimes? Okay. What are we fakers about? What do you think? Every, everything? What we're going through. What we're going through? I'm fine. I'm fine. Uh, right? How you doing, man? Fine. A friend of mine calls Great. it the fellowship of the fine. That's right. Good. What's happened? Oh, you know, not much. Living the dream. <laughs> <laughs> the dream, right? And here's, here's, we're, we're going to get there. Just a second. We're going to get there. But let's recognize something that we, that just walked into the room, though. We're not, we were not just talking about what happens when we are in conversation with non-Christians. We were just talking about what happens when we are in conversations with people at church. Which means, not only are we fakers outside of the walls of the churches that we attend, but we are also fakers inside of the walls of the churches that we attend. Now, why are we fakers there? Because we want to be seen as strong, and so we don't want to reveal that we're having a problem or something like that. Right. What were you going to say? People expect you to be living up to the Christian standard, um, and the judgmental and all the rest of it comes, you don't want to be judged as a Christian within the church with issues. Um, sure. Because, well, I thought you were a good Christian, so why is your life falling apart? And for those who are ministers, that's even worse. It is a million times worse if you're a minister. True story. We'll get to you guys in just a second. I had, there was this the church that I was at previously, there was a pretty serious issue in my heart that I was struggling with. And it actually came to surface on a weekend where I was meeting with leadership, and I was meeting with leadership, and I was talking to them, and I was just like, guys, I'm really struggling with this, and the next, I, I had to cover uh, communion and preaching the next day, and I got up during the communion talk, and I was just like, I feel like a complete failure. And I am struggling with this thing, and I can't get past this thing, and I need you to pray for me. And someone who loves me dearly came up to me after church, and she patted me on the shoulder, and she said, oh, Bryce, whatever it is, it can't be that bad. <laughs> now, does she love me? Yes, and I love her. But what did she just do? <laughs> whatever it is now can't be that bad. Fake it. Whatever that bad is, it can't cross this invisible line that has now been drawn. But I already knew it was past that invisible line. So now what do I do? <laughs> now what do I do? This is a person who loves me and that I love and that wants to encourage me and that I want to encourage. Is this what church life is like for us on a regular basis. Is this, these perceptions that people have about us, 
are not only perceptions they have about us, they are perceptions we have about each other. Try to lovingly confront someone about a sin in their life in church. <laughs> Good luck with that, right? Because what's the first thing that gets thrown at you? You're being judgmental, and you're a hypocrite, and I know what's wrong with you too. Why? Because what have we perpetuated over time is the most important thing about being a Christian. And it's strength. Being strong. Being solid. Being faithful. Being dependable. Not, not questioning things like other people do. Not having the same struggles and doubts. Do you realize that your ministers are not allowed to have marital problems? No, I'm being dead serious. They are not allowed. And if you're in the, and if the ministers in some of these churches came forward and said, I am struggling with my relationship with my wife, they may not have a job by the time the week is up. Because they are essentially walking the plank by saying, this relationship that I have struggles just like every single marriage struggles. Because what do we want from our ministers and our pastors? We want them to be strong. We want them to be strong for us. We want them to show us the way to do things. We want them to meet this standard that may or may not be one that is achievable at all. How does humility fit in? I'm sorry? How does humility fit in? How does humility fit in? We'll get there. I promise. We still have a little bit of time. <laughs> yes. If I'm transparent, if I share what's happened, what I've done, what I found, then maybe they wouldn't love me anymore. And this is this is the fear, Linda, that Linda just expressed that people have. That church is not a safe place to say what's wrong with you. Church is not a safe place to say what's wrong with you. Now, we should be drowning in the irony of that. That church is not a safe place. Did you have something you want to say? Isn't it part of it where, first of all, we're, we're ill-prepared to handle those things? Mm -hmm. And the reality is, is we don't care about other people as much as we care about ourselves. We're being honest in this room tonight. <laughs> I love it. <clears throat> so, hey, how are you doing? When I asked you how you were doing, I didn't really want to know. <laughs> and if this is going to take more than the two minutes that I was using to go get coffee in the other room, can, can we hit this up later? So we are revealing some things about ourselves, right? And we're revealing that, let's, you know, the, the fake is easier. The fake is less dangerous. And somehow it's become true that the church has universally accepted the faith as being okay. It's just how it is. It's just how it is. So, we have painted a fairly sunny picture of Christianity so far. <laughs> um, but I want to suggest to you that 
there is a pretty easy way. I say easy. There is a way to change this. There's a way to change it. We've been talking about David this week, and David is such a fascinating character for me. I, there, there are so many things that I appreciate about that story and about that life. And um, the David and Goliath story is remarkable. And one of the reasons why it's remarkable is because you have an entire nation who are the people of God that are staring at a single enemy and are unable to move. An entire nation, the people of the living God, who are staring at one enemy and are unable to move. And this enemy is coming out and is calling them names, speaking bad about God, talking about their mothers, like it's just, it's a nightmare. The whole thing's a nightmare. And David shows up, and he's like, are you hearing this? And they've been hearing it for months. Weeks, months at this point. And he's, this guy can't talk about us this way. Well, just shh. And David, David becomes indignant on behalf of God. We have God. And this is just some, granted he's big, but just some really big smelly dude. God can take care of this situation. And David somehow works himself to this point where he is the only one in the army of the living God who is willing to stand up and say God can win. He's the only one. And what does he do? He proves it. And who does he give glory to? God. God. And he claims nothing for himself. And you watch him grow and develop and see who he becomes, and he just seems to be channeling God. And then one day, this man who is so in touch with God sees something out his window that he wants. And at this point in his life, he is a man of power and influence. And he sees something that he wants, and what do men like him do when they see something they want? They take it. So he takes it. And then her husband comes back. Bathsheba, who was victimized and taken advantage of by the king. Her husband comes back, and he is an infinitely better person than David was at that time. And will not do anything with her, will not be around her. He just holds up all of these values. And David sends him to the front lines, and he's killed. What do we learn from the story of David that is true about all of us? Number one, with God's strength on our side, what do we become? Strong. Number two, when we become strong through God's strength, who do we begin to believe is strong? Us. Number three, when we start to believe that we're strong, who do we forget gave us the strength? God. Number four, what do we become? Something else. David, who was remarkable in his desire and willingness to channel the strength of God in a way that no one 
amongst the people of God can fathom or imagine for God's. And became king and believed he was strong. And when he believed he was strong, what happened to him? He lost all sense. Can we just say it? He lost all sense. And he became the worst stereotype of a king that he could possibly become. Who just takes and then uses and abuses and kills this man who is just trying to do the right thing. The man of God, ladies and gentlemen. So, here's my question. Is this something that just happened to David? What do you think? How, how did this happen? How did this happen? How did this guy, who was such like a great example for us, how did he become this thing? Who is this man? Pride. Pride? Poor choices. Poor choices? Forgot the source of his strength. Yeah. And so how does he, how does he, How does he how does he handle or what does he do with where he ended up? What does he do with when when Nathan confronts him and he finds out that he is the person who's done these things? What what is he left with? Broken. He's broken, and he's never the same person again. Never the same person again. Um, Paul is a fascinating guy as well. And Paul, as Saul, was out killing Christians, leading at, he was at the point of the spear of this whole thing. He is the man. Like, he, he knows what's going on. And then God appears to him, and he becomes Paul. And now he's like, Paul. Like, the Paul. The Paul. And so there's this, this, this verse which we have all, you know, we're familiar with it, I know. But I want to look at it here from 1 Corinthians chapter 12. If you have your Bibles, you can open it there. I'm just going to read it for you here today. <clears throat> Paul says, even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain so no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say. This is the biblical humble brag right here, if you're keeping score. Or because of these surpassingly great revelations. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, we need to break this down like a fraction for a moment here. Okay? Paul is doing amazing things for God. Amazing things for God. And what happens to him? What does he say happened to him? A messenger from who? From Satan attacks him. And what does he do? He prays for God to take away this thorn in his side. Why? Because what is he supposed to be? He's supposed to be strong. Right? And he recognizes, to his credit, that with this issue in his life, he is not strong. 
In fact, he can't overcome this on his own. And he does what we should do. He prays to God that God would remove the thorn from his side. And what do we expect God to say? Yes. And instead, God says no. And he says no for two reasons. We've always looked at, I think, the second one. But he says no for two reasons. What is the first? The first reason he gives for not removing the thorn is grace. Think about that for a moment. Paul has this spiritual, we don't, we don't know what it is, but he's got this thorn, this thing that's from Satan, which is keeping him back, that he wants to overcome. And God's message to him is, my grace is sufficient. What is he saying when he says his grace is sufficient? Yes, this is wrong with you. But I accept you. And I accept that this is wrong with you. I accept that this is wrong with you. What's the second thing that he says? My grace is sufficient for you because what? My power is made perfect in weakness. Weakness becomes power. His grace is sufficient and his power is made perfect in weakness. I'm fascinated with psychology about why people think what they think, how they think. And God, I am convinced, loves psychology as well. <laughs> because what does he essentially tell Paul? When you feel like you're strong, what's the first thing you drop? Me. So I want you to know, I know what's wrong with you. My grace is enough to cover what's wrong with you, number one. But number two, I want you to know what's wrong with you. Because when you know what's wrong with you, you allow me to be God. And you stop thinking you're so self-important and so great and so wonderful. And you allow my power to come and do things that you could not do. My strength and weakness. My strength and weakness. There's a couple things that I want to suggest to you about brokenness. And then you're welcome to uh, ask any questions and we can have some discussion, some more discussion if you want. Uh, so here's the first thing. Um, everyone in this room is broken. All of you. And... Some of you hide it better than others. <laughs> Mazel tov. Um, but we all have skeletons in our closet. We all have problems. We all have things that we can't figure out. We all have stuff that trips us up every single time. We are all incapable in one way or another. I saw someone who wrote recently, and I thought this was a wonderful way to put it, although it was not in this context at all. But this person said, all of us have written a chapter that we don't read out loud. <laughs> right? It is just true about us. Paul put it plainly in Romans chapter 3. All of us are sinners and, fall, and have fallen short of the glory of God. Who has done good? There is no one who has done good. And we know that. Oh, yes. 
we are all sinners. But somehow even the statement has become sort of a disingenuous escape clause for us. Oh yeah, I'm a sinner. Oh yeah, I make mistakes. But we are not just sinners, people. We are broken. There is something fundamentally wrong with us, made in the image of God as we are. And when we are given the opportunity to choose something besides God, if it is the right thing, the right button, the right moment, the right time, we haven't had enough sleep, we have experienced this thing, we're tired because of that, then we will choose the other thing. And it doesn't happen once, it happens a lot. It happens often. I am broken, and to be completely honest with you, I don't want anyone to try to be like me. That would be a terrible mistake on their part, to try to be like me. They don't need to be like me. They need to be like Jesus. And as a Christian, my job is not to point people to myself. My job is to point them to Jesus and allow Jesus and his love to transform their lives. Because I have another newsflash for you. I don't want anyone making a decision about their life because I think they should. I am not that important. My eight-year-old won't make a decision because I think he should. Why would I want someone choosing something about their life because I think it should be this way? They need to meet Jesus. And in meeting Jesus, that's where their lives will change. And if I am pointing them to anything else but Jesus, then I am wrong. No, not right. <laughs> wrong. I'm wrong. I thought I made that very clear. <laughs> Number two, my brokenness is not something I should try to hide anywhere. Eliminate the fake. Get rid of it. It has no purpose. And all it does is create shallow community. That's the only thing it does. My, and here's the irony to this, and I want you to hear this very clearly. My brokenness, my problems, the mistakes I've made, the story that I have, is the story that people are dying It's the story that people are dying to hear. I've had the opportunity to go into high schools and talk to teenagers about depression and to tell them about when I wrote a suicide note to my son and to tell them about the times where I thought my life had no meaning. And they come to me in secret after the things are over and they find me in the hallway and they tell me my mom and dad don't believe in depression and they think I just need to be happy, and I can't. But here's the story that I have to tell, and the really good thing, people, is that you have the same story. The story that I have to tell is that I'm profoundly messed up. I am broken, and there are things in my life that I will never overcome. However, Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me. And he doesn't love me how I'm going to be. He loves me how I am. And Jesus died for me. And he didn't die for me because he thought I was going to do something else. He died for me because he knew exactly who I was. He knows exactly who I am. 
and he knows exactly who I'm going to continue to be. That story is what people need to hear. That God loves someone who is broken and knows they're broken. God loves someone who is broken and knows they're broken. When Jesus was here on earth in ministry, when he was walking and teaching and touching and healing and doing all these things, who are the people he had a problem with? They were the ones who acted like nothing was wrong and that they knew exactly what God wanted. He called those people terrible names. But the prostitute on the street who was completely overwhelmed by her life, how did he treat her? The people who were betraying their friends and stealing from their neighbors, how did he treat them? The crazy man in the cemetery outside of town, how did he treat that dude? He loved those people. And part of the reason why he loved them is because they knew they were messed up. And they didn't hide it from him. We should not try to hide our brokenness. It is who we are. And it is the most powerful story that we have to tell for this reason. For those outside of the church, our brokenness makes us real. We are no longer Christian mannequins, dressed up and looking a certain way, acting a certain way, talking a certain way. Instead, we are real people who have real problems. And here's something even more powerful that you may not have considered. If people outside of the church meet real people with real problems who have found an answer in God, don't you think they need to hear that? Don't they need to hear that? Instead of, dude, everything's great, and I love Jesus, and he loves me. What do we expect them to do with that kind of a story? But if instead, here's someone who has real problems and real issues, and they are finding hope and love and salvation and acceptance in Jesus Christ, that is the story. And it's always been the story. That we are broken and that God loves us. And furthermore, our strength, whatever strength we have, is built on the foundation of our weakness. It's built on the foundation of our weakness. You know, kids think that they're really strong or they're really fast. You know, most kids think that they can run faster than their dad. <laughs> Certainly faster than their mom, right? And there's this wonderful time in where, you know, where like my son, Jed, who thinks he's really fast, wanted to uh, race the car. Because <laughs> he was convinced that he could run faster than the car. Uh, so of course, I let him run faster than the car, then I just hit him with it. But just really like, <laughs> me so that it just made him like roll to the ground a little bit, right? But this is our strength. We think we're faster than the car. Look at how fast we're running. Look at how fast we can go. But God is saying, you're not that fast. And look what's available to you. When you recognize your limitations, when you recognize your weaknesses, when you recognize these things, you have access to the power of God. And that access has always been there, but you don't use it when you think you're so great. So just accept that you're not as great, but that God does good things with you.
Okay, lastly. Does God want us to be broken or does he want us to be whole? Does he want us to be broken or does he want us to be strong? What do you think? What does he want for us? He wants us to admit our brokenness and in this weakness, it's his strength that will make us whole or make us strong, not ours. But we have to confess we And this is where humility comes in. Yeah. We shouldn't be afraid of who we are. And I want you to hear me out here. Because God knows who we are. And this, there are certain things that need to stay broken. <clears throat> that we need to know are broken. Because think about this for a second. We want God to heal us from something. So what does that healing look like? Those of you who have been through things before and have reached out to God and God has done something for you, what does is, what is healing look like? Because I can tell you I understand healing differently now than I did six or seven years ago. When I was so sick and when I had lost my mind and I was on the edge of whatever I was on the edge of, do you know what people wanted for me? They wanted me to be healed. But do you know what healing meant? That I went back to how they understood me before they knew I was sick. That that's what it meant to be healed. They also believed that me being healed meant that I would never struggle with depression and anxiety again. That I would stop taking medication. That I would never feel the way that I felt then. That's what healing means. That's what being whole means. And I just want to tell you, those definitions are wrong. Number one, I can't unbreak what was broken. <clears throat> I cannot unsay the things I said. I cannot unfeel the way I felt. And I don't want to unlearn what I learned. I don't. I'm different. And if you want to, if you want to ask me to go back to something I was before, I realize my profound brokenness. I can't. It's like putting on a jacket that I had when I was 10. That jacket doesn't fit anymore. It's too small. You know what else is too small? My idea of who God was. You know what else is too small? My understanding of what community means. You know what else is too small? My fear of telling people what I am. None of those things fit anymore. Because who I am now is someone who is profoundly broken. And I find joy in that. Paul says, I rejoice in my weaknesses and my sufferings and my persecutions and all of those things. You know why? I would like to think that at some point he realized he didn't have to be the Paul. 
could just be Paul. And he could just be messed up in the ways he was messed up. And he could go to sleep at night knowing that God's grace is sufficient. And in the moments where he felt the most weak, God's power would shine through. Because he would lower those walls, he would put those things down, and God would show himself to be true and faithful. What God does, you see, with our brokenness when he heals us, it's, he doesn't take it away, and he doesn't make it like it never happened. God lets those things scar up, and he lets those scars show. Because what God has done, you see, is he has shown himself to be eminently, ultimately, fantastically capable of redeeming the worst things that this world has to offer. And that is shown most profoundly in the cross of Jesus Christ, which was the worst thing that we could invent to do to another human. And now we wear it as a sign of hope and love and redemption. God didn't make it so the cross never happened. He didn't take the scars away from Jesus. Instead, he transformed it into something that is now beautiful. took our brokenness and turned it into something beautiful. You're broken. It's okay. God knows you're broken. Probably everyone around you knows it too. <laughs> and if we want to change community, if we want to change what churches are like, if we want to allow the people that we are in community with to come forward, then we start by doing one simple thing. We tell people what's wrong with us. And then we tell them about the God that loves us anyway. Amen? Amen. Let me pray over you and we can be done for tonight. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this time we've had together. I am grateful for the ways you have shown me my inadequacies. And I wasn't when you showed them to me. But I am grateful now. God, I pray that for all of us, we would not be afraid of the things that are broken inside of us, God, but that we would realize that the brokenness that is in us leads to greater things through you. For you are a God who redeems us. You redeem. You don't take it away. You don't heal it. You don't fix anything, God. You redeem. You change it into something else. And we want that for us, God. That you would change what is broken in us into something else, but that, God, we would never be ashamed of the fact that we need you mm -hmm. in all things in all times. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Thanks for being here tonight, everyone. Thanks for